This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It was national news when Colorado's prisons chief, Tom Clements, was gunned down at his home by a former inmate. That was four years ago this month. What gets less attention is the gunman's other victim, Nathan Leon, a husband and father of three from Commerce City. In coverage of the case, he's often referred to as the pizza delivery man who was killed earlier. The gunman used Leon's uniform to trick Clements. Nathan Leon's widow, Katie, and his mother-in-law, Bernadette Allness, still have a lot of unanswered questions about this case. And welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Katie, your husband disappeared one day. He went out to deliver a pizza and never came back. When did you first know something was wrong? It was about 2 2 p.m. on um, March 17th, St. Patrick's Day. Um, I was sitting there. I was baking a cake, getting ready for St. Patrick's Day, doing the normal like we usually do, making corned beef and cabbage. And we kept seeing police officers driving past my house, and we had the, the blinds open. So I thought it was kind of funny how they would just kind of stop and then move a little bit and then stop and move a little bit and look over at our house and get a knock at the door. And my twin sister, Sarah, um, went to the door and answered the door, and there was two police officers there. So I immediately ran to the door and was kind of like, no, this is weird. So I went to the door, and they had said that my husband was set out for a delivery and never returned back to work. I immediately started crying because that's just not Nate. He just doesn't do that. So... They told me, oh, you know, people go missing all the time. He probably just ran out of gas. I said he always has his phone on him. I'm always the first person he calls if anything goes wrong. Something's wrong. So um, throughout the day, I was dealing with police officers, uh, got a hold of my in-laws, you know, let them know that Nate was missing, posted on Facebook if anybody in the Denver area had seen Nate, um, described his car, you know, my friends knew what Nate looked like. So then they reposted and just kind of kept in contact with everybody to see if anybody had found him. But uh, You, you did call his cell phone several times. Oh, and continuously the entire day, yeah. I can understand. And eventually someone answered, but it wasn't your husband. Yeah. Who, who answered? Some gentleman up in Golden um, had found his phone thrown over a bridge. And um, his phone and his phone case were completely detached from each other. Um, but this gentleman had was, I guess, jogging and heard Nate's phone ring and picked it up. And I immediately freaked out. I said, you know, who are you? What are you doing with my husband's phone? Oh, I found it over a bridge and stuff like that. And I had asked him, you know, if I could get his name. He refused to release his name at the time, said he didn't want to be involved. And I was crying and explained to him. I said, my husband's missing. You know, where he um, was last seen was in Denver. And then his phone was in Golden. It just didn't match up. And it so. must have just added tremendously to your anxiety. Oh, yeah. Yeah. When did you find out that your husband had been murdered? Not until that next morning. A long night. Um, yeah. March 18th was the morning I had found out. Um, they had told me that they had found a body on March 17th while I was at the police station. My brother-in-law had contacted my sister, whom was with me at the police station um, the night of St. Patrick's Day, and um, had said that the um, radio station or whatever had found a body that fit the description of Nate. And that was the last thing I had heard. They didn't release anything. Nobody knew anything. So Until the next day. Yeah, I got and a phone then, call from my father-in-law the next day. And it was confirmed that it was him. Yes. Did you realize quickly that it had been connected to this other murder of Tom Clements? 
No. Who, who led the Colorado Department of Corrections. No. That took some time. Yeah, it took and, a and obviously time. that came after. Yeah. The motive for your husband's murder appears to be his pizza delivery uniform, which parolee Evan Ebel used to disguise himself when he went to Clement's home. Uh, Ebel also made your husband record something before he killed him. What was that? I'm not exactly sure. I've never heard the recording. Um, I know they released a short little clip um, in a newspaper of what he was forced to, to read from some kind of paper or whatever that Evan Ebel had wrote. And what was the nature of it? Um, basically, um, the injustice of the prison system and the people that were left in solitary confinement. Um, basically, how Evan Ebel set out now to harm families um, because there was no justice for him while he was in there. There was no kindness, no nothing for him. So he was going to go out and he was going to be unkind to other people. So basically, he had said um, – he had forced Nate to say, we leave – Oh, we take knowledge and comfort knowing that we leave your wives husbandless and your children fatherless. We should say that this parolee, Evan Ebel, um, had spent a long period of time in solitary confinement. And it wasn't long, actually, before you found out that a clerical error led to his release four years before it was supposed to happen. Yeah. Clerical error. He was let out four years early. And so the murder of Clements, this fairly well-known state official, made national headlines, and the death of Nathan Leon was often just a sentence or two in news articles. I wonder how that affected you, Bernadette, and what you would have liked to hear on the news about your son-in-law. One thing I didn't like was that he was referred to over and over as the pizza delivery man. He was so much more than a pizza delivery man. Nate was smart. He worked at IBM and he was such a a unique important individual. What made him unique? The things that he liked every day he set out to learn a new fact, trivia or something, and he always came home and shared it. Sometimes it was really bizarre, but that's what he did. A hunger for knowledge. Yes. So you decided to file a lawsuit against the state for its role in the murder, this clerical error. And it was dismissed, I understand, because the state has immunity in certain cases. Mm -hmm. Katie, yeah. how, how did you feel that the state in general handled things with your family? <laughs> it was a joke. It was a joke. I didn't get a public apology. I didn't get nothing. They just hid behind their good names and, and kind of let me fend for myself, you know, while me and my children were left there to suffer. They, they were guarded by, by their immunity and just kind of hidden the shadows um, while we were left to face all this stuff. So, Did that add to your pain? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. What would you like to hear from this state? You know, even a public apology right now would just kind of be a joke. I, I, it would mean nothing to me. It would be like me begging them to come out and, you know, tell me sorry after four years. Four years of, of heartache 
depression, anxiety, pain. Officials did come to the funeral? State Um, officials? I guess so. I really don't remember a whole lot Mm -hmm. um, the first year. It's a blur. It is a blur. I was completely um, in shock and numb the first year. As we said, a key issue in the case is that the perpetrator had spent much of his eight years in prison in solitary confinement and was released directly from what's known as administrative segregation to the outside. And at the same time, the prison's chief, who was murdered after your husband, Tom Clements, was actually trying to reduce the number of inmates in solitary confinement. Yes. The El Paso County Sheriff's Office says this case is still open. At one point, the sheriff there indicated the investigation was coming to a close, but then reversed course. And we should say that the parolee who pulled the trigger and murdered Nathan Leon and Tom Clements was later killed in a shootout with police in Texas. But there's the question of whether it was part of a larger conspiracy, whether the Clements murder was ordered by a prison gang known as the 211 crew. What what are you sort of hungry to know about this case? I want to know if there's anybody else behind it. Um, you know, the 211 crew obviously set Evan Ebel out to do all these these murders. And, you know, there was a hit list in his car and stuff like that. So it just kind of I, – I know that he – may have killed Nate alone, but there's so much more that goes along with it. You know, he was, he was let out and, and he bought this gun and he planned this whole thing. Well, I I don't think Evan Ebel was smart enough to plan this himself. I believe that there was people behind it. So it's still an open case, obviously, but there's more to it. And Bernadette, what kind of contact does your family have with investigators? (laughs) None. Um... We've just kind of been put on the sidelines and nothing we read. We read what's in the paper and um, the last article that was published uh, by Kirk Mitchell, we found another little piece that we never knew. What do you think's happening? I, I mean, I, I gather this leaves you in, in, in some ways to speculate, Katie, and I, I don't want you to do that here. But what what do you make of the situation? They're probably just tired of hearing me and and wanting to keep Nate's memory alive and let people know that Nate is just as important as Tom Clements. He may have not had a big name to everybody else, but he was my big honcho. That was my husband, and he was the first person that was murdered. And I'm not saying that it should be shined upon Tom Clements. I'm not saying that because Tom Clemens didn't deserve to die as well. I just don't want Nate to be forgotten. So he was important to us. He was important to us. And, you know, there's there's so much more. He wasn't just immediately killed when Evan Ebel had found him. You know, that there was so much more that went along with that day, you know, that a lot of people don't really know. So do you want to say a few words about that? If Nate wasn't targeted, which, you know, he obviously wasn't, they didn't know each other, but why would Nate be taken from his car? Why would he be thrown in the back of a trunk, drove 18 miles to Golden, forced to make a recording, shot multiple times, and left out, hogtied in the trunk, and left out at a recycling center like a piece of trash? You know, Tom Clements, um, when he was murdered, he just opened the door and boom, boom. That was it. 
So, you know, there's a lot more that goes along with Nate, you know. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and it's been four years since the murders of Nathan Leon and Tom Clements at the hands of a parolee who was mistakenly released early. We are speaking with Bernadette Olness, uh, his mother-in-law, Nathan's mother-in-law, and his widow, Katie Leon. Uh, This is the aspect of this story that gets far less coverage. And uh, Katie, I, I... Wonder how you are doing and how your twins are doing. They're eight? Yes. Yeah. Uh, which made them four at the time. Yeah, they had just turned four. And how would you say this has affected them? My children are two different people. Completely different. They were so filled with life and love and happiness. That was taken from them on March 17th. <laughs> It was taken from them. My children have suffered with horrible anxiety, horrible depression, abandonment issues, night terrors. You know, it has been a battle from hell since their dad died. They don't understand it. You know, piece by piece, I've had to tell them a little more about what happened with their dad. But even at eight years old, you know, you don't understand. Me being 34, I I better understand that this world's a sick place. But our life has completely changed. It has completely changed. I wanted to start over and and move somewhere different and kind of give my children a chance at life, new beginning. That was denied. That was denied, thank you, to the uh, DOC. But uh, life hasn't been easy at all. Have you connected with other... Um, family of murder victims. I wonder if in in some ways you've found a new community that understands what you've gone through. Yes, I'm actually um, friends with um, Mommy, which is Mothers of Murdered Youth out in Colorado Springs. And I'm also um, a member of POMC, Parents of Murdered Children, here in Colorado. Goodness, groups you probably didn't even know existed before, huh? I didn't. Yeah. I didn't. And uh, they've been my family. They've been amazing people. Bernadette, do you crave closure? Does this feel like a case that's not closed to you? Oh, yes. It's not closed. There's too much that we don't know. Thank you for being with us and sharing uh, this, this obviously painful story with us. You heard Katie Leon talking about the murder of her husband, Nathan, in March 2013, and Katie's mother-in-law, Bernadette. I'm sorry, Katie's mother and uh, Nathan's mother-in-law, Bernadette Olness. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Teddy Roosevelt missed out on fighting in the Civil War because he was a boy when it ended, but he idolized the heroes of that war, and so he lobbied for the U.S. to do battle in Cuba in what became known as the Spanish-American War. Roosevelt formed a band of volunteer fighters, mostly from the West, known as the Rough Riders. Their stories are told in the book Rough Riders, Theodore Roosevelt, His Cowboy Regiment, and The Immortal Charge Up San Juan Hill. Mark Lee Gardner is an author and historian. He lives in Cascade, just outside of Manitou Springs.
Thank you. Very glad to be here in a Colorado public radio station. Nice to welcome you. It surprised me to learn how hard Roosevelt worked to get the U.S. into war. He was serving as assistant secretary of the Navy and gave up that job to fight. In addition to being inspired by those Civil War soldiers, mm-hmm. why else did he want to go into battle so badly? Well, there's there's different theories out there. Um, you know, one of them certainly he had this... Uh, amazing martial spirit. I mean, you know, Roosevelt wrote about manliness, and, and but he also felt like it was a duty of every American to serve his country. And he, of course, he served it in many ways. But I think for him, the ultimate way of serving your country was to fight for it um, in its wars and against its enemies. Is it fair to say that he felt if he didn't fight for his country, that he was somehow less than? Yes, I think so. And in fact, one one thing a lot of historians bring up, you know, his father did not fight in the Civil War. And the reason his father didn't fight was his his wife was a Southern belle and his wife had brothers who were fighting in the Confederate Navy. And he didn't want to drive a, a larger wedge in his family by going, joining up and fighting as a Union soldier. So he paid to have a substitute fight for him, which was quite common amongst the wealthy. You oh. could actually pay to have one serve in your place. Uh, and so Theodore Roosevelt, that was kind of a uh, somewhat of a shame on the family that, or at least he felt that way. And he, he wrote later, he says, I didn't want to have to explain to my children why I didn't fight, which is what his father had to do for him and his brothers and sisters. Now, Mark, I'm picking up on a subtle difference in how we're pronouncing this name. Roos- oh. You're saying Roosevelt. Yes, I do. Yes. To Roosevelt. And I, you know, and I've heard it both ways. It's just like uh, I'm from Missouri. Okay. In Missouri, but you, you, it's either way is acceptable. All right. Well, just as the U.S. declared war on Spain, Congress passed a bill to add a military unit made up of guys from the West. You write that the American cowboy was thought to be a natural-born crack-shot fighting man by a public fed on shoot 'em up dime novels and thrilling performances from Buffalo Bill's Congress of Rough Riders of the World. What kinds of men were they looking for, and who did they get? Well, they they were looking for exactly this kind of mythic, you know, Westerner, gunfighter, uh, expert horseman. Uh, There was this thinking at the time that these Westerners were actually even uh, better suited to survive the harsh you know, humid, tropical climates because of their experiences in the outdoors. and In the uh, arid West. In the okay, arid West, some exactly. Strange, yeah. Some strange thinking. Exactly. And um, so what they ended up getting, interestingly enough, they did get real cowpunchers, but they also got stenographers, actors, teachers, uh, blacksmiths. I mean, really people from all walks of life in the Western territories. But at the same time, uh, there was a great demand to join from people in the East. Um, they called them the millionaire recruits, Ivy Leaguers, polo players, people that were friends of Theodore. Um, so uh, you had this real mix in every economic level from the simple cowpoke on up to the guy who was a champion tennis player. Wow. You, you say cowpunchers. That's yes. just a cowboy. Is no, that way, right? same thing. Cowpunchers, okay. yeah, buckaroo. Got it. There were also Oklahoma Indians yes, there were. in this mix. Were you surprised by some of the men who took part? Um, yes, in a way I was. I mean, I, I was really more surprised by some of the swells that, that joined up, um, some of the Easterners. Um, the fact that there were Literally, they were champion polo players, and there was a guy that had won yacht races. Um, and 
you know, they weren't, you know, the, the fact that they would want to do this, I mean, they had a very comfortable life, and, uh, but this was, this was something thrilling and exciting. Well, I mean, it's, it really, Roosevelt was kind of the same way uh, in the way his thinking was. What about uh, African Americans? What about blacks? Well, at the time, the army was segregated. Uh, and, you know, in New Mexico, there were, I came across a letter where one, one African American complained, you know, where there's no room, you know, why isn't there a volunteer unit? For us, we want to fight for our country. In the Rough Riders in particular? Yes. Well, not in the Rough Riders in particular, but just wanting to fight. There was no way that, the, because the Army was segregated, there was no way that they would integrate within the Rough Riders or any of the other volunteer units. Okay. But the regular Army did have African-American regiments, which we famously know now as the Buffalo Soldiers, and they did participate and fight um, in, the, in the war. The only African-American to actually be with the Rough Riders was Roosevelt's valet. He had a servant, and uh, he went to Cuba with the TR. He brought his servant along. Yes, he did. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with author and historian Mark Lee Gardner about his book, Rough Riders, Theodore Roosevelt, His Cowboy Regiment, and the Immortal Charge Up San Juan Hill. The rallying cry for the Spanish-American War was Remember the Maine. It was a U.S. battleship sunk in Havana Harbor, and... Um, these men from all over the country wrote to their families that they were motivated to fight because of the sinking of this ship. And reading excerpts of their letters, I was reminded of a poll that came out recently. The Harvard Kennedy School of Government found that young Americans support sending ground troops to fight ISIS. Hmm. But fewer than 20 percent were willing to fight themselves. So different yes. from the Rough Riders. You know, there were some who didn't ultimately get to to be in that battle, and they were heartbroken. Yes, they were by in tears. It. Yes, does that contrast surprise you? It did. It, it, it. I mean, there were literally tens of thousands of men that rushed to enlist when the war broke out, and um, yeah, it is a complete contrast uh, to today. And and I, I and I think it goes back. In, I don't know the exact reason, but I think some of it does go back to the way the Civil War veterans were so honored. After the war, I mean that this was the great war to all Americans, and you know Roosevelt grew up as a boy during the war, and there were parades and there were uh, monuments that were done and reunions and and these young men in the 1890s did not have that kind of heroic moment that that glory those they didn't win any laurels yet, and mm-hmm. here was their opportunity to prove themselves. And so they had seen a very affirming ev- environment, yes. if you will, for veterans. Yes, exactly. And, and longed to be lionized, yes. I, I guess. And, and they also, they really felt Spain was the enemy. They really blamed Spain for this tragedy, this explosion that, that cost 266 men their lives in Havana Harbor. There is one character who really brings this idea to life. Theodore Miller was yes. a Princeton graduate. His father founded Chautauqua mm-hmm. in New York, and he goes down to New Orleans to meet the rough riders on their way to Florida, where they will then ship off to Cuba. Mm -hmm. He wants to join the unit and just barely gets a spot. Exactly. He was like, he he had a connection and there was, you know, with any military unit, there's, there's illness and uh, men, men drop out for whatever reason. And there actually had, there were measles even before the unit got anywhere, uh, you know, important, even during training camp, you know, men were sick with measles and other illnesses. So there was a spot for him in in the company uh, that was, that was a friend of his, uh, was a lieutenant in and was able to get him in at the last minute, literally. And he was thrilled. He was thrilled. And he still almost didn't make it to Cuba because he didn't have a gun. You know, they had to find a gun for him in Florida. 
You have an incredible level of detail in this book about the Rough Riders, especially about how the soldiers interacted. Um, can you read from a scene? It's from the first battle at Las Guasimas. Yes. Here, a journalist, Richard Harding Davis, finds a trooper stretched out, leaning on a rock, and he has a small hole in his forehead. Mm-hmm. His name, the, the, the trooper's name was Tilden Dawson. Davis knelt down, took some water from his canteen, and washed the wound and found where it exited the back of the head. He tried to pour some water into the boy's mouth, but the water rolled off his clenched teeth. Davis reached into the trooper's blouse pocket and pulled out a thin book, a copy of the New Testament, published by the American Bible Society two years earlier. He flipped it open. Scribbled in pencil on the end papers was Tilden Dawson, Nevada, Missouri. It's no use, came a voice from behind Davis. The journalist turned around to see another young soldier standing in the trail. The surgeon has seen him, the soldier said. He says he is just the same as dead. He is my bunkie. We only met two weeks ago at San Antonio, but he and me had got to be such good friends. But there's nothing I can do now. The bunkie sat down and began to cry. Davis moved on toward the sound of the guns. Back on the skirmish line, Wood, Colonel Leonard Wood, commander of the Rough Riders, walked up on a trooper who had been shot through the chest. Blood completely soaked the young man's clothes, but he was somehow still conscious. When he saw his commander, he pulled himself up against a tree and slowly reached out his hand. Colonel, he said, I have only a minute. Can you shake hands and say goodbye? You write in just such incredible detail in that scene, and let me say in many others, Mm -hmm. particularly about the battles. How do you do that accurately? Well, you know, I I try to—I really love dialogue, and I try to find primary sources. I mean, all the dialogue I use is quoted from primary, so I don't make any dialogue up. Okay. But— I, I found literally dozens of letters that had not been seen before by various rough riders, and it was all thanks to the internet. Um, you know, millions of newspaper pages have been scanned in the last several years and are available online. And many of these rough riders wrote letters and sent them home. Well, the parents or the sister or the uncle walked down to the newspaper office and handed them, "Hey, I got, just got this letter from Cuba," and it was published. And so I had this resource available to me that wow. other historians haven't had. And so a lot of those details, uh, the dialogue, the discussions, um, come from those primary accounts. This discussion of the soldier who asked to have his handshake by Leonard Wood, that came from an account, a manuscript that Leonard Wood wrote after the war for a magazine, never published, but it's at the Library of Congress. So I use all these different sources, and, and I love the detail just like you do, and I feel like it just makes it so much more of a visceral read to have that in there, and, and I, I try my hardest to do that. Mark Lee Gardner, historian and author, is with us. His new book is called Rough Riders. Despite the fact that the Spanish knew the land in Cuba much better and had other advantages at Las Guasimas, the Americans pushed the Spanish troops back. And ultimately, the Rough Riders took part in the most critical battle of the Spanish-American War at San Juan Hill, also known as San Juan Heights. This led the Spanish to surrender. Mm-hmm. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt played a big part strategically 
and it really cemented his legacy. Can you explain just briefly what he did that was so critical to Victory at San Juan Hill? Yeah, well, what was going on, um, it was just like the whole beginnings of the war. Everything was very disorganized. The commander of the of the army in Cuba was a very heavy set man, William Shafter. He was ill most of the time, so he wasn't on the field, and he was having to relay orders back and forth, which was very time-consuming. Well, the Rough Riders were actually being held in reserve uh, before San Juan Heights, and they'd been there for about an hour, and finally... Roosevelt gets the order to advance. Well, as the Rough Riders advance, the other troops in front of them who are supposed to be charging hadn't gotten the orders to charge. And so Roosevelt is there. He essentially says, either you take my orders and charge or just get out of the way and let us through. Well, as the Rough Riders start marching through, everyone joins with them, Buffalo soldiers, uh, white regulars, and they together, the cavalry division, assault uh, Kettle Hill, and Roosevelt's in the forefront, you know, leading his men on. And from Kettle Hill, the next ridge or hill is San Juan, and Roosevelt gets permission to charge San Juan as well. Again, he's always exposing himself to fire. He's at the head of his troops, inspiring his men. Now, the infantry was also charging San Juan Hill, so sometimes we tend to give all the credit to the Rough Riders, but they were one unit in this long assault of this ridge. But an important one. But a very sure. important one, yes. And and some of the officers really ascribed the credit of the success largely to the personality and the exuberance of Theodore Roosevelt. And yet, he almost didn't get awarded the Medal of Honor, although it was something he was very confident he would get. Yes. Um, but he only got it in the 1990s under Bill Clinton. Yes, and the legacy of the Rough Riders is Roosevelt's own presidency, exactly. I suppose. Yes. Do you think he could have won office were it not for that? Well, you know, and, and we've, I've talked about that a lot. It, it's, it's a very interesting question. A lot of people who met uh, Roosevelt before the Spanish-American War felt like, I mean, this man could be president someday. But I, I'm not so sure without his heroics and the national spotlight that he earned from from his actions in Cuba that he would really have gotten to the presidency so quickly. I mean, it was really uh-huh. a direct line from San Juan. He becomes governor of New York because of his heroics. Then he's on the presidential ticket under McKinley. And then he becomes president when McKinley's assassinated. You use the term bravery. Mm-hmm. But is there a certain foolhardiness here, too? Yes. Yeah, okay. yeah there exactly <laughs> is. Uh, you know, one, one um, rough rider wrote home and he says... You know, in fact, he said that Roosevelt was a little too foolhardy. I mean, he was a very brave man, lionhearted. But he says, if Roosevelt acts in another battle as he did today, I expect him to fall. I mean, it it really was a miracle he didn't fall, um, uh, that he survived somehow. Thanks for being with us. Well, thank you for having me. And he would, of course, go on to fight many other battles of different different varieties. And it was often successful. Historian Mark Lee Gardner recorded in May. His new book is called Rough Riders, Theodore Roosevelt, His Cowboy Regiment, and the Immortal Charge Up San Juan Hill. Gardner lives in Cascade, Colorado. You can read an excerpt from his book at cprnews.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Maybe you've heard this saying, reading is fundamental. The general assumption is that everyone can follow words on a page. But for those who can't, there's a service Coloradans can turn to. The Talking Book Library in Denver provides free Braille, large print, and audiobooks. Here's a clip from a mystery called Retirement Homes Are Murder. Where was I? 
I gasped for breath and felt beads of sweat form on my forehead. I surveyed a room I didn't recognize. There had to be something to jog my memory somewhere. What looked familiar? The Talking Book Library is part of the State Education Department, and CPR's Joanne Allen asked its director, Debbie McLeod, who the library's target audience is. It serves blind and low vision, but it also serves people who have physical conditions that can interfere with reading, and that's like MS or Parkinson's or arthritis or the after effects of stroke or um, traumatic brain injury. These kinds of things can interfere with your ability to read for pleasure for about an hour or longer. Many people can manage their mail, but to read for pleasure, it makes it a little more difficult. We also support people who have learning disabilities and uh, reading standard print becomes difficult in that case. How does the service work for your patrons? Do they come into the library or what? We serve our patrons by sending the library materials through the mail, and it goes through the mail postage paid, so they don't have to come into the library. Uh, This works very well because we serve all of Colorado. Uh, If you live in the metro area and can... Um, get to the library, we're in Denver, Um, you can come in and work with a reader advisor. But generally, um, everything goes through the mail. We also have digital download of audiobooks. So if you have um, a smart device or uh, are happy using a computer, you can download your books that way. So, um, So there's these two different methods of getting... Um, a physical copy or a digital copy. Would you say that most Coloradans are not aware of this service? Oh, absolutely. We estimate that there are 450,000 people in Colorado who are eligible for the service. And at the current moment, we're serving 7,000 of them. So while this number has been pretty steady over the years, um, we know that there are a lot more people who um, could use this service and uh, kind of reacquaint them with being able to read again. What's interesting, too, is that your service has been around for 86 years? Yes, yes, that's right. The federal law was passed in 1931, so it's kind of like the best-kept secret. (laughs) I know we have many of those in Colorado, but this happens to be another one of them. So we'd love to be able to spread the word and make sure that anybody who needs the service could access it. The library is a a state-federal partnership. Are you all concerned at all, given the climate in Washington and some domestic cuts that appear to be coming down the pike? Yes, indeed, we are concerned. It it is a federal-state partnership with the Library of Congress, but some of the funding that comes through the Institute for Museums and Library Services funds part of our budget, and uh, it's proposed to take away that entire funding stream, and so we would be losing... um, seventh staff and out of 13 and 25% of our budgets. It would be a major compromise, very concerned about that proposal. 
So how would you make up that difference? Is there a way to do that? And is this a surprise to hear that uh, that much funding might be going by the wayside? It's not a complete surprise because off and on over the last um, 60 years, this funding stream has been threatened in the past, but it has never um, actually come to fruition. But we don't want to take it lightly that this is on the chopping block. How could we make up that uh, fund, that amount of funding? I'm not sure. At the current moment, we have a volunteer program that provides us with uh, 12 full-time equivalents. So we have 200 volunteers that come into the library during the week and contribute their uh, time and talents. And so to have to have even more volunteers to pick up the slack would be, um, I wouldn't say impossible, but could be um, tricky, right? And we also have a Friends of the Library organization, and they also provide us 25% of our budget. So it would be hard to expect them to increase that more than they already contribute, which is a lot. Give me your best pitch for Colorado Talking Book Library. We hear from patrons uh, when they find the service and start the service that this service has completely changed their quality of life. They are not isolated anymore. They feel connected to the world again. Their depression lifts. Uh, it we hear that over and over again. So this really feels to us like a quality of life issue for people who uh, can't read, have other issues that they're dealing with, and this is one uh, bright spot during their day. Debbie McLeod directs the Colorado Talking Book Library. She spoke with CPR's Joanne Allen. This month marks the 86th anniversary of the Pratt-Smoot Act, which established the national network that includes Colorado's Talking Book Library. Somewhere amidst hiking, history, and drinking, you'll find the soul of Colorado, says Denver journalist Ed Sealover. He has written a guidebook called Colorado Excursions with History, Hikes, and Hops, by day, Sea Lover reports for the Denver Business Journal. Your book lays out three-day trips around the state, each with a historic site, a natural spot, so maybe a hike, and a drinking site to visit. Is there a tour in this book that you are dying to go back to, someplace maybe you'd like to be right now other than here? You know, maybe the place that surprised me the most and that I I always want to get back to is a hike called Zapata Falls that is not far from the Great Sand Dunes. Um, I'd only read a little bit about it as I was uh, researching where to go for this. And so I I set out down this path and it was only half a mile long. thought, this isn't much. Uh, But the path drops you in the middle of this grotto where you then climb. Climb into the falls. You're not watching the falls from a nice overlook. You literally can climb up onto the rocks, get into the falls, and just be immersed in the roaring sound of the water. And it's just this one stream of light coming through the top. And it's one of those places in Colorado where you really think, I'm not in this world anymore. I am somewhere else. Wow. Is it a very misty environment? It is. Yes. It's a very wet environment. In fact, you one of the great joys of the hike is that you have to cross the stream several times. So you have to just get over the idea that your feet aren't 
aren't going to be soaked by the time you're done with okay. this, and you embrace it as you go. Okay, so that's one third of the story you're telling, right? That's the hike, that's the getting outdoors, and then you marry that with history and drinking. So what else did you find in the area to make that trip complete? Well, the San Luis Valley is a fantastic place, and it's very surprising that you might find one of the more complex Belgian brewers in Colorado down there in the little town of Del Norte, 1,800 people, one stoplight, one stoplight, two buffalo farms. Uh, I, was, and... I was just there, actually staying there. The, the Monte Vista Crane Festival was, was in the, oh, next, yes. the next town over. They've also got a great honey shop in Del Norte. I did not know that. There you go. Uh, yes. But um, but the Three Barrel Brewing, uh, founded by John Bricker, was actually started in the back of his insurance shop. So you used to be able to walk in, <laughs> uh, buy a policy for your truck, and also get a growler of his beer. He actually moved it about a year and a half ago to a, a brand new location, pizza restaurant. But you're just shocked at the complexity of these beers and, frankly, the niceness of, of Bricker and his family, who are the primary staff there, uh, in, in, in this middle of seemingly nowhere place. I mean, and, and you throw that in. And, and I'm kind of mixing two days uh, in the book as I uh, as I talk about this. But you throw that in with visiting a place like Fort Garland, um, which is uh, not on a lot of people's radar, but a fascinating and very important historical site uh, that was home to the Buffalo Soldiers for a brief period, was one of the last uh, homes of Kit Carson, and was the place where uh, Colorado forces gathered before they went off to fight the Battle of Glorietta Pass, hmm. the westernmost battle of the Civil War. And, and it was only around for 25 years, but is preserved and you really get a sense of how important the West was in the early days uh, of, uh, of this country. Okay, so that's the San Luis Valley and remind us, Zapata Falls and then the brewery is? Three Barrel Brewing. Three Barrel Brewing and then the historic site to check out is? Fort Garland Museum. Fort Garland. What drove this project? Was it the beer? At first, the history, at first, the hiking. It's a little bit of everything. I mean, these are the three things that I do with my downtime. And uh, as I, uh, as you may remember, I wrote a book in 2011, Mountain Brew, that was a guide to Colorado's breweries. And I wanted to do a follow-up, but I could never go back and do that again because breweries are opening so quickly, it would be irrelevant before it comes out. Uh-huh. And so uh, I thought of uh, something that Brian Dunn, uh, who's the founder of Great Divide, and Adam Avery, the founder of Avery Brewing, told me during that book, they said, you know, we we tried to do things that other people were doing when we founded our breweries and we were struggling. And then we said the heck with it. And we ended up making beers that nobody else was making, but that we liked. This is kind of that version for me. I, I love history. I love hiking. I love uh, drinking good beer or, or wine and spirits. And I don't know how many people have those three loves. But to me, this is what this state is all about, those three areas. And I thought, I'm going to throw it out there. And I'm going to put out a guidebook like nobody else has done that tries to explore these great facets of Colorado. Okay. How about a trip a little closer to the big cities of the Front Range? So within, I don't know, uh, an hour or so of Metro Denver. Well, uh, one that uh, I enjoy and that I'm actually going to make this weekend as I have a sign down there is getting up to the Cripple Creek area, uh, which is about an hour uh, west of Colorado Springs. Uh, the the day that I have in the book takes you on a, a natural uh, ride. Most of the most of the natural sites are hikes. This is a drive, uh, Gold Camp Road, uh, that used to be uh, an old mining route, uh, literally where the gold uh, was run over. And 
and now it's one of the best foliage drives in the state of Colorado. It's along a dirt road away from nowhere, and it takes you uh, takes you out of your your normal day. Uh, you get up to Cripple Creek. Uh, you can go visit the only Bordello Museum uh, in uh, in in Colorado. It is uh, it is preserving the history of Cripple Creek's red light days up there, and uh, and being at the old Homestead House Museum uh, is is really an eye opener. Uh, and then you go over to the Boiler Room Tavern, and and this was a, a fun little find for me. Cripple Creek doesn't have any breweries per se, but uh, it has this old bar in the basement. It literally was the former boiler room, the former laundry room of the Hotel St. Nicholas in Cripple Creek. And it uh, it's only got about six, ten chairs in it. They've got a few good beers and, and spirits, but it really puts you in this mindset of, wow, this hotel, which used to be the Catholic hospital in town, really <laughs> has seen a lot of these days. And I am just for a brief moment part of it. We are speaking with Ed Sealover about his guide, Colorado Excursions with History, Hikes, and Hops. One trek that stands out to me is uh, Lake City in southwestern Colorado. I want to say this is one of the most remote places in the lower 48. It is not far outside of Gunnison, I think, and um, it's surrounded by vast federal lands, which makes it so remote. And the town is probably best known for its connection to the cannibal Alfred Packer. And, and that's exactly why I chose it. It is, uh, locals brag of it being the re- most remote city in the lower 48. Um, it, if you're going to go there from Durango, it's going to take you about uh, uh, three hours to get up there, in fact. Um, and uh, But to me, the idea of seeing why Packer ate these people. Why? And of course, if you don't know the story of Packer, he was uh, guiding a group of uh, gold seekers uh, through the wilderness in winter uh, through Colorado. They got uh, marooned and lost. Uh, and depending on the version of the story, they either all died, all five of them, and he ate them, or he killed all five of them and ate them. Uh, courts have found the latter to be the more true version. Uh, and, uh, and to go to Lake City and to be able to stand on the plateau where they were all later found, where their bodies were found, and see how isolated it is uh, really puts you in that mindset. And then to be in a town uh, that uh, that is this far out of it and still have a cool place like the uh, Packer Saloon and Cannibal Grill, where you could go and <laughs> get local beer and an appropriately uh, meat-centric menu, um, really made me feel like this is, this is an essential stop to understand Colorado away from the Denvers and Fort Collinses of the state. Another day trip takes people to Camp Amache in Grenada, and the it's the Japanese internment camp there. And that I think that same excursion is the one that includes the Sand Creek Massacre National Historic Site. So there are some very uh, sobering places in this guide. There are. And I actually combined the two of them into one day just because you only have so much time in southeast Colorado. And I thought it, it certainly is. And, and I just call the chapter Colorado's Darkest Days. Um, uh, but they are two very different experiences. At Sand Creek, it is a lonely, lonely plain that you're looking at over and imagining as, you, as you've 
reread the story going through uh, the museum area there, imagining what it must have been like for the peaceful Indians to be just attacked by a, a drunken band of soldiers one day in 1864. Uh, meanwhile, at Camp Amache, which which theoretically is is also a place of great sadness. You've got 10,000 people who were forced out of their homes during World War II into this internment camp, but at the same time is a great place of hope. Uh, the, the local history teacher who runs the Amache Historical Society Museum um, has all of these great stories about the forming a football team at the internment camp high school and beating local Holly High, or the newspaper they produced there, or the for-profit business they were able to produce at this camp, uh, while 31 of them went on to serve in the army and and to receive high medals, despite the fact that their country had taken their liberty from them. And, and seeing how remote that area is, is a fascinating look into how that camp ended up there, too. Well, thanks for sharing all of this with us, Ed. No, thank you. Ed Sea Lover's new guidebook is a mix of drinking and hiking and history, and it's called Colorado Excursions with History Hikes and Hops. There is an excerpt at CPRnews.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. (laughs) 